if we're talking to 20 kids, we might have literally three that might feel like I can make it. Kids leaving a juvenile detention center can feel hopeless about their future. That's where the My Next Move program at the New York City-based organization Rising Ground comes in. My Next Move is an aftercare support program led by credible messenger mentors. The mentors are credible because they too experienced court involvement when they were teens. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Community Dialogues, a program for frank discussions about race, racism, and racial justice. In this episode, we're talking with Ed Gorch. He's Clinical Director of Justice for Youth and Families Programs at Rising Ground. Also with us are Rohi Ramnath and Chaz Lines, both credible messenger mentors with the My Next Move program. Ed, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you, George. We're happy to be here this morning. Rohi, hello to you. Hey, Dylan, George. Thanks for having me. Chaz, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> so, Ed, let me start with you and get a little bit of background on the My Next Move Aftercare Support Program. What does it entail exactly? So, My Next Move is part of Rising Grounds program, uh, working with the Close to Home Initiative. So, youth that are adjudicated youth through family court who are leaving placement and going back to their communities, it's an aftercare service to support them. So enable them to make safe decisions, uh, to prevent rearrest, and really to adjust to life back in the community after they've been in placement. So the idea is that the youth get to know the mentors and the, the case planners, Chaz, Rohi, Didi, um, while they're in placement. So then when they leave, they're not being handed off to a stranger or to a new agency. They're gonna be working with somebody who already knows them and their families and the basic setup is that they meet twice a week for group where they get together and talk about whatever topic is on their minds that they bring or topics that are set and ready to go by the mentors and the case planners. So it's an extension of our close to home programs to make sure that kids get out of placement and stay out of placement safely. What are the greatest challenges that they face when they do get out of placement? That not so much has changed in their communities whether it's in their building within their apartment on their block in their school even though they've been in placement and they've might have learned some new emotional regulation skills they've learned how to make better choices when they go back to their communities things are very much the same so a challenge is to strengthen them to use what they learned in placement to stay safe when they're back home Chaz Rohi, I want to bring you into the conversation because you help these kids now, but you essentially were these kids, right? You lived these lives. Chaz, tell us your story. Uh, my story, uh, well, I grew up without a single parent home, but I actually lost my mom at a young age. So I kind of lost my way, even though I had support, but I was just a troubled youth with going through the trauma of losing parents and gang violence in the neighborhood. And just being around the wrong people growing up, it was really no, nothing positive. We didn't have like the program like me and uh, Rohi do right now with Rising Ground. It's just, it was less resources. Now that we have resources to help these kids, I feel like if the kid was in my situation or has similar, we can help them now. And I'm glad, I'm glad we have that now because I didn't have it before. Rohi? My story pretty much is uh, uh, the similar one. Uh, single parent home. Um, 
my my dad, I have to give him a little credit. He was there, but it was he he didn't live with us. So you know, when we're with him, different views over here, different views over there. And I grew up in the the heart of the mess. So when I walked out my door, it's the drugs, the violence, the poverty, uh, everything around me. Uh, with respect to my mother, she had five kids, single mom. Her mom and dad died. Her sister passed away, and she stuck with five kids all along. So. It was on from there, so that's that's part of the connection with the kids that we we connected. How have the lessons you learned helped to inform your work in working with these young individuals now, Rohi? Um, actually, because when I when I uh, started to realize certain things on mature, I realized it was all BS. You know, so I want to give it to them just like that. I want them to understand that there's some things that they're going through are, are they're believing in the hype is really a smoke screen. It's BS, you know, but like, like we speak on, it's a, it's a bigger scale than that. You know, these kids are in the mess and they don't know it. Yeah, with me, I was always, it was always like one road, like, like a highway with no exits. Like I tell the kids, like, you can actually go different ways. You don't have to just go straight. You can go back when it's a restart. You can get off at an exit if you feel that's where your goal is. Or you can keep going. Like sometimes, like these kids, they uh they're so one track minded on being solidified in the streets and wanting to be this person and be that person, but not realizing as that person gets older, that street cred means nothing. So you might as well just grow up and uh just try to be the best person you can be and pass the knowledge that you get back to the younger generation. Ed, how important is it to have mentors like Chaz and Rohi, people who have lived the experience to communicate and get across to these kids? It's crucial. It's where it's at. I mean, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, but I haven't been in the same exact situations as a lot of the young people we work with. I've been in my own situations, but they don't want to hear about that. I think that understanding the power of the relationships between mentors or youth counselors or direct care staff, they spend much, much more time with the youth than the therapist does or the clinician or the psychologist. Not to take away from work that mental health professionals do, but it's the real more just time spent real world bonding. So to understand the value in that and to be able to collaborate with colleagues like Chaz and Rohi and Didi and Calvin and Foster and all the people I've worked with. And it is really an honor, you know, because their words are really just so valuable because, you know, when it's 2.30 a.m. and something's going down, they're probably not going to call me. They will call Rohi. They will call Chaz, you know. So, yeah, no, it's an honor and it's, um, you can't, you know, put a price tag on saving lives. Chaz, can you share a story for us of someone that you've worked with where you've made that difference for them? I had a, a child from, he's actually uh, 19 now, I believe. Uh, he was in aftercare. He was very troubled. He was in and out of placement. But um, once I really got to know him and his family, I really got a grasp on uh how I can help him change because it's hard to like to start with a kid that doesn't really know you too much. But once he gets to know you, then he has that comfortability with you. But um, one of my kids, he actually was going through a hardship with his mom and they lived in a one bedroom apartment with a bunch of kids and 
everything. So um, with him, he called me, always asked for help. I helped him get into a GED program, helped him fill out job applications, helped him get uh, an OSHA card. So now he's uh, actually doing well now. I mean, COVID happened, it was a little sidetracked, but now he's doing well. Bro, he? This is a bittersweet story, but this uh, just came to mind, you know, just to uh, – just to show you how impactful the work is. Um, I got, speaking of Ed, when he was saying you get calls two o'clock in the morning and I remember this kid, uh, his mom called me, it was like two, three o'clock in the morning. And I remember waking up to the ring, I thought I was dreaming and I see his, this kid's mom, I'm like, let me call and see what's happening. And she called me to tell me her son was shot. You know, and I almost asked her, why are you calling me? You know, I'm like, like, you know, I wanted to, like, you know, I didn't, at this point, I'm, I'm just saying, okay, well, okay, uh, where is he, what's happening? And bottom line is when the smoke cleared, like later that day, I was able to go see him, you know, she gave me the, the okay to come visit him. And I asked her, I said, you know, I was, I was thankful you called me. I didn't, you know, know exactly what you wanted from me. And you know what she said? She said, it, it wasn't really for me, it was for him. You know, he believed in you guys and, he counts on you guys, and I just thought maybe if you showed up at his bedside, he'll perk up. And I mean, this kid was just shot a few hours. I'm like, you know, so, you know, we, we when we're faced with certain things, sometimes we don't even understand our value, you know, and we're thankful for that part of it, you know, and thankfully he recovered. Let me ask you this question, because clearly what you do helps to prevent kids from going down a dark path once again after they've already walked a dark path on their own. But what do you think needs to be done to help prevent these kids from going down that dark path in the first place? I'll say it time and time again. I can't stress this anymore. We need resources for parents. We need, we need, um, we need uh, regardless of mentors, we need that uh uh, mental health uh, persons like what Ed and them do, uh, clinical health, the mental health, we need it. It's, it's essential that uh, these homes are plagued, yes, with violence, drugs, addiction, poverty, but they're plagued with mental health as well. You know, we, we, we give these, like I always say, we give these kids these tools to, to do better, to be better, to think better, and they go home to mom who hasn't gotten any of these tools or dad. So we definitely, we need more mental health resources. We need to have the more conversation. We need, we don't just need to mentor the kids. We need mentoring for mom, for dad. Most of them aren't bad parents. They just don't have the tools. Chaz, what are your thoughts? Definitely more services in the community because like, as I walk through my community now, I see like they're breaking down community centers to build up new high rises and ruining the basketball courts just kids have nothing to do. It's too much idle time for them. Like, as before, like, it used to be a lot of YMCAs and everything, but it's no funding for those type of programs anymore. So now what they do is they're building up these housings that we can't even afford to live in most of the time. So now a lot of our parents and have to live with their kids in the project buildings on public assistance, but you see these people come outside, nice cars and a beautiful building, it's just a lot, but there's definitely more resources that we need in the community. Ed, do you want to add on to that? Yeah, I mean, to add on what Rohi and Chaz were saying, it's like 
one for chess, like that safe place, you know, that used to be, whether it was the Y or the community center, whatever, where you have a safe place to be during those hours of the day, which is one thing that before COVID hit, that our kids could come to group twice a week, either at our Williamsbridge Road site in the Bronx or downtown Brooklyn on Lawrence Street. They had that safe place to go. And part of our program is that they have meals, they get incentive gift card, but it's the place. They have a place they know they have to be. It puts some structure in their lives when they're home. And then back to you know what Rohi said about the care providers at home is that we, we are, try to get to them and we support service, but we feel like sometimes it's a handoff. You know, we know that when parents do better, kids do better. So we wish that we had that piece to go into for that mental health piece because um, you know our kids it's not they're not the first members of their families to be traumatized this is generational trauma this is racial trauma generational after year after year family after family and so you you know we need to go in there to support the family as well so that's the part like yeah we work with our these youth because they come to us through family court and then a lot of the our resources are focused on them but we wish we had the ability to also branch out to mom, dad, grandma, auntie within the community to give them the support to provide the supervision they need for their kids. Chaz Rohi, as Ed pointed out, these are issues that do impact generations of individuals. It goes back a while and it certainly impacts disproportionately communities of color. Can we talk a bit about what needs to happen there to end that level of systemic racism, your input on that, to block this cycle so it doesn't continue? Well, definitely uh, better schooling. Like, the schools in our neighborhood, it's like, I don't know, like, the actual facts of everything, but I know, like, we don't have the greatest teachers because they're not getting the highest dollar as someone that's getting a good education in, like, a private school or something is getting. But um, definitely schooling, uh, job, better job offerings, nothing, minimum wage is not enough to raise a family, especially if you're someone that has three or four kids, like, that's not going to work. But, um, Ro, you want to jump in? Yeah, I think it goes back to the conversation. We need these outlets. We need, uh, uh, we need more resources. We need more uh, mental health professionals involved. You know, we need to uh, have the conversation. The the uh, when you go into the uh, to the racism of it all, we need to have a sit down. We need not be afraid to uh, speak in uh, with our true feeling about what's going on. You know, uh, I mean, it's 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 horrible out there right now as far as uh, the racism, black and white. We're going at each other left and right. You know, we we we're calling it the police, but it's just really a it's a it's a racial issue. That's that stems too far back to to remember, but overall, to claim for me to give the answer, in a sense, would be a little grandiose. But I would just say to give it a, a few hints, maybe you know, uh, we got to get to the basis. We have to have the conversation. We have to work through what our issues are, and move forward. We have to. Uh, uh, we're doomed. How much do the kids that you work with see opportunity in their lives, feel that they have a path forward, feel emboldened that they can do what they want to do in life? And how much do you have to talk to them about that and help them to realize that they should take the steps that they want to take? 
Well, an example would be if we're talking to 20 kids, we might have literally three that might feel like I can make it. You understand? Yeah, this is the truth of it. So we, we probably have three that really feels like I can make it. So for us to talk to them and, and help them uh, make better decisions or help them believe in themselves, it's an everyday thing. It's an everyday thing, you know. This is this is why Rising Ground has come up with the the <laughs> the program and said it's 24 hours a day because they understand it. You know, they understand it's an everyday thing, day in day out. You know, these kids are they they really don't believe. I mean, if, I mean, if they look around the community, how can you believe? It's hard to believe. Yeah. <laughs> you know. You know, they, they might look on Instagram and TV. They really don't believe that it's, they're able to achieve it. You know, we have groups on achieving goals, you know. And, and, and part is this, too. Uh, these kids today are, uh, are into uh, instant gratification. So, so to put in the work is like, what are you talking about? Like, you know, like, like you really want me to do this for six months and then I get, the, you know, the goal, you know, so... Yeah, so that's, that is the thinking of the youth at the moment. And how frequently do young folks who go through the program return to want to lend their voices to help others? That's the, the goal of, one of the goals in my next move is that we eventually can hire one of the kids as a mentor as they get a little bit older and move on. And we do have kids that leave and come back. Like we had one kid that moved to Florida when he came back to town. He wanted to check in with the group. So we do have kids that, return to quote you know like where the seed was planted and that's one of the things about this work is that we don't always know we don't see immediate results like Rohi said that instant gratification from social media like we're not going to get that with our kids we might see small improvement but we're not really going to see how we strengthen them until time goes on but yeah no kids come back kids maintain uh, relationships with their counselors with their mentors which is really at the end of the program like we know that um, kids typically form close relationships with the youth counselors when they're in placement. So that was part of the spirit is that we wanted to keep it going with my next move when they left. But that's really the next evolution is how can we hire kids as mentors, you know, and, and we'll get there. And, and that's part of us, you know, our plans for the future as we want to focus more on community-based support. Um, fortunately, you know, even before COVID and, 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 George Floyd murder and things kind of went back, we were moving in a direction where we were um, downsizing Rikers. Um, you know, even the, the nature, the spirit of close to home that weren't, we were not warehousing kids upstate in big facilities, but we're keeping them in smaller nurturing settings where they can, visit their families, where they can earn DOE credits. We were heading in that direction. And in a way, right now, the call for so social justice might actually be the gas on the fire that we need you know, to kind of keep that moving. And we're not going to go back to where we want to warehouse youth who make bad choices, you know. So I, I also just wanted to take a second, George, if I can, um, about, you know, the stopping the cycle of systemic racial injustice, because Chaz basically gave a dead-on example. You see community centers knocked down to build housing for people who are not black and brown. So the people that got kicked out are not going to be able to afford to move in there. So one of the things that, you know, when you think about it, is like affordable, safe housing that has resources for all. That's one of the things that I systemically think about. Like that is what one of the things that we don't see happening in New York City. 
that, but that's one way to kind of put the brakes on this cycle where that was a very clear Chaz was just talking off the top of his head. Fancy housing put in. Who's living in those housing? You know? So I just wanted to throw that in there as as because that's what my mind was racing on as Chaz was speaking to that. Ed, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Rohi, thank you. Chaz, thank you for showing up for these kids. Thank you. Yeah. And that's it for this edition of Community Dialogues. For more information about Rising Ground's My Next Move program, check out risingground.org. Our music is courtesy of bensound.com. I'm George Boldarki. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>